Welcome to Week in Review. We recap events and issues pertinent to Central Illinois. I'm WMBD News Director Will Stevenson. Governor J.B. Pritzker signed a law this past week that effective next year will require employers to give up to 40 hours of paid leave to their workers on an accrual-based system, leave that can be used for whatever reason. Peoria State Representative Jahan Gordon Booth was one of those championing the legislation. I want to lift up some folks. Um, certainly Senator Lightford and myself have the the distinction and the opportunity to be able to stand here at this podium. But this work, uh, the passage, not just the passage, but the sign, the signing of this bill today would not be possible if it weren't for a lot of folks. Um, I want to look to my left and I want to acknowledge um, Erica Bland, SEIU Healthcare, who has been an amazing partner in this fight for four, for four long but patient years. Um, the women of Women Employed, uh, uh, Sarah Labrady, uh, Wendy Pollock, uh, they are incredible advocates in this space. And frankly, we're working on this bill long before I showed up to the table. Uh, my good friend Zach Kotsky, who used to be with UFCW, who was a staunch advocate for this legislation um, from the very inception. Again, to our partners, not just in labor, but also on the business side. Rob Carr, Alec Leard with the Illinois Retail Merchants Association. Uh, Donovan Griffin and Mark Dinsler with the IMA because again when we have the ability to pass legislation like this that impacts literally four million Illinoisans it's because of the work that we're able to do together and I stand here today particularly proud as a working mom who has a, a young daughter who is in the hospital and in doctor's offices far often uh, than I would ever like her to be but that that is the situation and the hand that we've been dealt. And so we make the best of it. And the reality of it is, is I feel the luxury to be able to, when I have to pull away, I have the ability to pull away when necessary and have the presence of mind to know that many of the pressures of life, the high cost of electricity, the high cost of groceries, that I don't have to make the choice between being able to put food on my daughter's table, to being able to put food on the table, being able to cover some of those utility costs, but also being able to be present and to be able to do this thing called adulting in a way that provides dignity. And I don't just stand here today with my colleague as a working mom, because that's not what this bill is about. I'm giving you my story because we all show up in this space carrying the stories of ourselves, of our communities on our backs. But this is about bringing dignity to all workers, because that is who is impacted by paid leave for all. All workers in the state of Illinois will be covered by this transformational policy that, again, would not be possible had it not been for the labor community being staunch advocates for this policy, for working men and women in this state, if it wasn't for the advocates stepping up and fighting for this, and the business community holding our hands in partnership in order to be able to deliver such a powerful, powerful benefit to bring dignity to workers all over the state of Illinois. So I'm proud to stand here today with my colleagues and friends and look forward to the signing of this bill because it has been absolutely a long time coming. Up next to the podium, up next at the podium is someone who know, who needs no introduction because she has historically been showing us how, what it means to pass 
not only progressive policy, but pro-business policies here in the state of Illinois, and that's none other than Majority Leader Kimberly Lightford. Thank you, Speaker Gordon Booth. She's much too generous. You guys really need to know she worked so hard on this initiative. As the governor stated, and many of us have, it changed hands so many times. This is an issue that has been lingering around the General Assembly for far too long. So I'm really glad that it landed in my lap when it came over to the Senate. I know that Senator, former Senator Toy Hutchinson carried this bill for a little bit too, so I wanted to make sure I mentioned Toy. But again, thank you to everyone for coming out today to celebrate this monumental piece of legislation. About four million workers workers, as uh, Speaker Jordan just mentioned in Illinois, do not have access to, ev to even a single sick day. So I want to give you a little story because I want to say that again. Can you imagine people in this state cannot take a sick day without being penalized or losing their pay? Now let's think about that for just a second. Imagine your child is down with the flu, a bad cold, or even COVID. And you are one of these millions of people. You have to consider, should I leave my child home alone or risk losing my job? Or imagine your car breaks down unexpectedly and you have no way to make it to work. You have to worry about if you'll be able to put food on the table. Let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, why should a person have to think for just one second if they will risk losing their job or losing wages if they stay home to take care of themselves or their loved one. Don't we think that should be a basic human right? Yes. Today I stand before you. Thank you. Basic human right. Today I stand before you to proudly say that in Illinois, thanks to our governor, those worries are no more thanks to the signing of the Paid Leave for Workers Act. And through this law, we are requiring employees to receive a minimum of 40 hours of paid leave to be used for any reason within a 12-month period. Over the three-fourths of low-wage workers do not have paid sick leave. And unfortunately, black and Latino people, as well as women, are overrepresented among low-wage workers relative to their share of the total number in the workforce. Too many low-wage workers go to work sick because they cannot afford to take unpaid leave, and then they make everybody else sick and fear losing their job if they do. That's just simply inhumane. Thanks to this measure, workers have the peace of mind that they can take care of themselves today without worrying about the consequences tomorrow. As I leave the podium, I'd like to thank my colleagues, all of my colleagues that are standing here in the General Assembly for working just as hard to make sure this came to fruition. I'd like to definitely thank the governor and lieutenant governor since we've had them in, in over the helm of this, the state. We've passed so much progressive legislation that we'd worked on for decades. So governor and lieutenant governor, thank you so much for supporting this law that affirm workers who need to care for their health care needs or the health care needs of their loved ones are given the much deserved right to do so. And it is a right. Thank you so much. More Week in Review coming up. 
Two former schools in Peoria are in the process of being torn down or are about to be. The former McKinley School is being demolished now with the former Harrison School to follow. Both have sat all but completely empty for decades in South Peoria. Peoria City Council member Denise Jackson has said she'd like more affordable housing in those spots and other vacant South Peoria locations. The Peoria Area Association of Realtors has some ideas too. WMBD's T.J. Carson talked about it with Association President Jennifer Hamm. The report uh, that was sent out by the Counselors of Real Estate Consulting Corps, CRE, um, they are the professionals that actually developed the report and the recommendations. Um, they come from many different backgrounds in the real estate industry, and so it's nothing personally that I'm hoping to see or um, it, it's more structured around what we brought to the city as a resource to develop their report. And overall, um, the big picture, the Peoria Area Association of Realtors, myself, um, and our affiliates, we're hoping to see that area redeveloped and to revive those historic neighborhoods and those parcels into something that will basically um, ignite transformation of those areas. Uh, we all are very much aware that there's a lot of what we call deserts down there. There's a food desert for food, fresh groceries. Um, there's a retail desert, lack of retail opportunities and shopping, uh, medical, um, very few medical resources in that section of our community. Uh, so it just goes on and on. And so what we are hoping to do is bring these professionals in and um, through this program that was offered through the National Association of Realtors. And we, once we evaluated the program, what it would provide to Peoria, uh, Illinois Realtors Christy Ingerman and myself reached out to Mayor Ali and asked for her partnership in applying for this grant or program, per se, and to start uh, brainstorming on what could we be focused in on. And we all agreed quite early on that these soon-to-be uh, demolished two school parcels uh, in that 61605 area code was definitely an area that we needed to improve. You mentioned the public-private partnership with the city. Uh, how vital is it to have that partnership working towards this goal? It's critical. It's critical. It's crucial. Um, we have to utilize those resources in both the public and the private to be able to bring the funds necessary as well as the development in that area. It cannot all sit with the city of Peoria or um, funding coming out of public funding. It, it does need reinvestment from the private sector. It's just it's critical. There's no way around it. Um, the funding that needs to happen, the development, that all cannot rest on the government entity. What kind of funding are you seeking for this project, or what, what could be sought for this project, and how much might be needed? Is that dependent on also oh. what is going, what could be planned it's for it? Early. Yeah. 
Right. It's too early to tell. Uh, so the big picture here is that the Peoria Area Association of Realtors applied for this program to provide a professional consulting report of the situation, which was done by the Councils of Real Estate Consulting Corps, CRE, um, to provide that report free of charge to the city of Peoria. Normally in the past, um, many of these studies, consulting cores, et cetera, would come in and, and at a very high uh, ticket price to the city of Peoria residents um, and the city, I mean, the government, we would have to pay for this type of report. And this was basically our gift to the city of what this professional group, real estate industry group, felt needed, could be done and needed to be done to get that area back up and going. Um, and so once that report was done, now what will happen next is we've delivered it to all of the stakeholders that were involved. Um, we had over 60 plus stakeholders involved in this project throughout the city, private and public sectors. Uh, and the report's been delivered to all of them as well as to the media. As everyone basically starts to digest the report, analyze it within their own entity, we will be planning a roundtable meeting sometime in mid-May to bring the stakeholders back in uh, to the PAR office and have discussion of what's next. Where do we go from here? That depending on who takes the lead and what decisions are made going forward as to what actually is the next step, that will dictate what the price tag is and what the mix is. Um, you know, what, what is comprised of private sector versus public, um, and, and which stakeholders are involved at the very beginning and then in the middle and, and towards the end. So there's a lot of what is right now up in the air. This is the, the air, very early stages. So right now you're just trying to see what ideas could be out there and what to center and focus on. Is that my understanding? That is correct. After the mid-May roundtable meeting, um, also the right now we have commitment from four out of five of the counselors, the real estate team that was actually here working on this project. They will be present at the roundtable as well to help answer questions, clarify um, anything that any of the stakeholders have in the city so they, they can move forward with their plans. This partnership has... You mentioned a lot of people involved, public and private. So it sounds like you're going to get a lot of different perspectives on what should be done with these properties. Uh, there's some varying uh, perceptions or ideas. But at the end, it, I think the common denominator is 61605 needs new life. It needs to be redeveloped and reimagined. And we need to focus on it and actually take action. We don't, I mean, we do not want this report to end up on the shelf like many other reports in the past. We actually do want to see this through and, and see change for that portion of our community. So it sounds like there's an urgent need to redevelop this and get something there. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. We don't want, um, the city has done a great job in, Securing the funding to remove, demolish the, the two schools, 
and return it to vacant land. We don't want to see that vacant land sit there for many years without redevelopment. We want to give hope to the residents in that area, and we want to start, you know, we want to keep that momentum going that the city has started with the demolition of those two areas. Now, reading the release uh, you sent out, uh, it mentions the city's new downtown payment assistance program. How could that be involved in this process? And what is the program for those who are, may not be aware of it? Okay. Well, the, the city of Peoria offers many great assistance programs, funding. Um, one is, uh, if you go to their website, I don't have it. I'm sure you can find it. Um, but one is that they will actually provide a down payment assistance based upon the, uh, the purchase price of the property, and it's got to be within a qualified census tract. Um, Joe Doolin at the city of Peoria or Matt Smith would be two great people to talk to to get the details on that program. Okay. Um, how it would tie into the 61605 redevelopment is if we could start getting um, some new new homes built in that area, the consumers, residents could also, anyone wanting to move into that area could utilize some of the down payment money to assist them in purchasing the property, meaning that they would be bringing less or no down payment to the table when they close on the property. To talk about the properties again, what we've talked about is you can see like potentially businesses coming into this area. Is housing also a possibility in this area? Oh, yes. Yes. And that is in the report, I believe. Um, there was talk. There's equity to own or lease to own programs that were suggested by the CRE group. Um, because some people do not have the ability to actually purchase their own home right away. They may have to build equity or, or rent to own or equity to own. That's two programs that they suggested. So they might move into a property and a portion of their rent or lease would go towards their down payment over a period of time and then they would trans transition into purchasing the home. Um, it, it's definitely a key part of the big picture. Um, one key thing to mention is especially for the residents in 61605. There is no intention or purpose anywhere in this report that we want to have gentrification. We don't want to push out current residents um, throughout this process. We want to build them up. We want to help them obtain the funding they might need to make improvements to their home, to just maintain their home, to be able to stay there. And as the redevelopment and the the um, reinvestment in that area starts to grow, then the equity that the current residents would have in their properties would also grow. It would give them, you know, more equity in their homes. So it's not that there's no intention here. I know there was um, some speculation of that early on and even some concern mentioned by some residents. We don't want to be pushed out. We, and it's called gentrification. Um, they don't want to be pushed out, and that's that's not what we want. We want the residents there to stay, and we want to build upon that. And, of course, then address the issues that if you're going to live in 61605, they need, uh, they need 
food markets with fresh food available to them, not a, a Dollar General that has processed food. Um, they need medical services down there. Uh, we need to improve the transportation. There's many different other facets that feed into that to make it an appealing place to live. More Week in Review coming up. Local and other state lawmakers are still looking at ways to help keep the public safe from the ravages of fentanyl. It's the largest cause of accidental deaths in the area, and lately, it being laced with an animal tranquilizer has been the cause of 40% of all overdose deaths in Peoria County. A proposed new law would allow retailers to sell fentanyl test strips over the counter. I'm Bill Howder. I represent the 87th district, which is uh, Tazewell County. Um, it's uh, all of Logan County, Lincoln, Illinois, and, and Clinton, Illinois. Well, thank you uh, for this, and um, thank you for the question. I'm a physician in Peoria. I'm an anesthesiologist as well as an emergency physician. I'm, I'm board certified in both specialties. And as a, <clears throat> excuse me, as an anesthesiologist, I deal <clears throat> and I utilize fentanyl all the time. It's a very uh, useful drug um, because it's so potent and it's so titratable. It also makes it extremely dangerous. And then in a, as an emergency physician, I deal with this as well in overdose and, and uh, treating the overdoses that we see so often. So I have uh, a lot of experience with this. The test strips are a yes or no uh, test strip. Do I have fentanyl in my, in my drug? Or, or do I not? And so it's a way for them to quickly find out if their drug of choice has been um, laced or, or cut with, with fentanyl. And uh, a lot of uh, people that are addicts don't want or desire fentanyl in their drug. So uh, that, that's the usefulness of the test strip. So to be clear, the test strip tests the drugs. It's not like I'm popping the drug and then I'm testing myself. No. Because if I've got the drug in me, I probably am not in any condition to do that. That's, that's correct, yeah. It's, so this is really, there's a, there's a group of addicts that um, are substance abusers who um, they want fentanyl. And this is not what they want. They don't, they don't need the test strip. They, don't, they won't use the test strip. They want there to be fentanyl. But there's a group of users I think of that are like no, opioid naive is what we call them. And so there's, that's the person who is a, um, maybe a cocaine addict or a, uh, or a meth or Adderall or ecstasy, and that's their drug of choice. That has no opioid in it, and someone has illegally cut that drug that they, that they usually take with a very potent opioid. Those people may desire to know if they're at risk for sudden death um, with their usual drug that's not an opioid. Then there's also the people that are on an opioid, but at a low level. Maybe they take a, Narc a, a Norco or a Vicodin or Oxycontin, and they, they know their dose. They take it. They are addicted, but they're, they have some tolerance, and they're not withdrawing. And they have fentanyl pressed into their pill illegally. They're at great risk for sudden death. They don't desire fentanyl in their pill of the nar narcotic pill, and they may want to test and see if they're at risk for absolute, um, you know, the risk of sudden death. To the anesthesiologist, do you have any idea of the cost that, that might be associated with this? How much are the strips? How much are a pack of thousand? Like how do they? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I don't know that, but I do know. 
I do know the cost of Narcan is it's 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 ex extremely expensive, especially when you have to redose and the nasal um, uh, spray is a, l a little bit more of a packaging issue. And so we're seeing, you know, we're getting Narcan out, but in medicine we know for sure that it's better to prevent something than to rescue someone. And Narcan has a lot of problems uh, with its implementation. We're getting it out everywhere, but Narcan has to be, first of all, you have to have a person there with you that recognizes that this is an overdose situation. Then they have to have Narcan with them, and then they have to have enough Narcan, and they have to administer it. And then we get into a situation where the Narcan has re reversed the hypoventilation from narcotics, but it hasn't reduced the obstruction because a lot, a lot of these people are, have it obstructed airways because of the position they were in when they when they went into a, a very very sedated state. So that person also needs to know how to open the airway, give them a you know a patent airway. That's not happening. Then you have the problem with this person is now withdrawn from narc uh, from from their narcotic. They're extremely angry. They're belligerent. So many times in the emergency department, we see somebody that we've save their life and they, they couldn't be more angry at us for withdrawing them from their narcotic. They never want to have Narcan again they, because it withdraws them immediately and they, they want to seek a narcotic as soon as possible to, because it's a very uncomfortable process to withdraw. So the nar Narcan has a lot of problems. It's great that it's out there, but it's a rescue. It has a lot of problems. This is a prevention and preventing that person from getting into that state. So the, I don't know exactly what the cost is, but I know the, the value of it is huge. Republican Conference Chairman Jeff Kiker of the 70th House District, which covers parts of DeKalb, Kane County, and a, a little bit of McHenry County. Um, I'm here to share a little bit of a personal story and, and uh, hopefully put a light that's uh, touched my family for everybody to consider. As we look at fentanyl, we look at the, the damage that it's doing not only to our state but our nation and the, the expediency with which we need to make sure the tools are available that we can solve the problem on the front end before we have deaths on the back end. 2016, my cousin, um, who had had many struggles in life, who had been clean for a long time, was faced with a number of tragedies, our grandfather passing, a move across the country, and her life circumstances changing. She was in the Chicagoland area, returned back home to Santa Fe, and was found later that afternoon in her vehicle, overdosed with fentanyl lace drugs. My cousin and I got in the vehicle the next day and, and drove out to Santa Fe to clean out her apartment and to put all her worldly belongings in a vehicle and bring them back home to her mother and our grandfather. Folks, I, I don't want to have any parent, cousin, brother or sister, have to deal with that tragedy again. It's why the bills that Leader McCombie has presented today are critical to the protection of our people on the front end before we have death, before we have tragedy. Life circumstance often puts people in a position where they think that this is the avenue and this is the solution. But many times they're seeking that high or to maintain their ability to not go through withdrawal. By the availability of fentanyl strips being out there more readily available in the marketplace, we will ensure that our loved ones, our community members, and those that are seeking relief are able to be here and hopefully one day find that relief through the proper mechanisms. 
I'd now like to turn it over to my colleague, Assistant Minority Leader, Brad Stevens. Good morning. I'm uh, House Assistant Minority Leader Brad Stevens. I represent the 20th District, which includes parts of the northwest side of Chicago and the northwest suburbs east of O'Hare Airport. I'm a co-sponsor of House Bill 3203, joining Leader McCombie today because of the devastating impacts that fentanyl has on our communities. There were over 1,400 fatal opioid overdoses in 2021 in the city of Chicago. Over 85% of the local deaths involved fentanyl. DEA Administrator Ann Milgram has stated that fentanyl is the single deadliest drug threat to our country that our country has ever encountered. Fentanyl test strips can save lives. They are low cost and have easy steps to test drugs for fentanyl, which could have life-saving effects. House Bill 3203 will allow pharmacists and retailers to sell crucial strips over the counter to the public. By allowing the public to access these strips easily at their local pharmacy or health department, this can add a crucial and potentially life-saving step for members of our communities who encounter controlled substances. This legislation is a bipartisan effort to combat the rise of fentanyl in our communities and take steps to help our constituents. Illicit fentanyl is a poison in our community that is taking the lives of our loved ones and neighbors. I encourage my colleagues to co-sponsor this legislation and support it as it moves through the House so it can help save the lives as soon as possible. More Week in Review, coming up. This past week, people from the American Red Cross Central Illinois Chapter and the Peoria Fire Department worked together to get brand new smoke detectors with built-in 10-year batteries to those who requested them through a Red Cross campaign. Lynn Haruska, Executive Director of the American Red Cross Serving Central Illinois. Tell me what's happening here today, Lynn. Well, we are really excited. Today is Sound the Alarm. We're going out in the neighborhoods here in Peoria area um, with uh, Red Cross volunteers and some of our corporate partners to install free smoke alarms. While we're there, we will work with the families to make sure they know how to create an evacuation plan and know how to get out of um, multiple rooms multiple different ways. I imagine you're probably just as surprised as anybody at the, the number of homes when you do this that either need a smoke alarm or who otherwise didn't have one before. You know, I think we all know that working smoke alarms is important, but there are so many other things that compete with our daily lives. It isn't surprising to see a stack of new smoke alarms sitting on a workbench, or it isn't surprising to see smoke alarms with the batteries removed with very good intentions of getting them replaced. But the reality is way too many of us don't take care of that detail, and it's really critical when it comes to single-family house fires. I was going to say it's a critical thing, but then it almost becomes either something that's on one hand out of sight, out of mind, but on another hand sometimes almost annoying, case in point, any time my mom turned on an oven when I was growing up, for instance. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, we've seen a few batteries in kids' toys and things like this. Um, but the good thing about these um, particular smoke alarms that we're installing, they have a 10-year lithium battery that is not removable. So those these alarms are going to work for a good long time, and uh, we know that those batteries can't be removed. So um, we know people are safer. That's something that... Uh, 
we were reminded of by the fire department this last weekend with the time change and that uh, that's a relatively new Illinois law and a relatively new thing in general, right? Yes, we've always encouraged people to trade out those batteries in the fall when we fall back and in the spring when we spring ahead. But one thing you might not know is that those units themselves only have a useful life of about 10 years. So if it's been 10 years or more since you changed out the unit, even if you've kept those batteries fresh, it's really time to get new smoke alarms. Are people surprised to hear that when, when you talk to them about it most of the time? Yes, I think, you know, when you move into your place, you know, you think about it then, um, and then it's really easy to forget. They're on the wall. They look like they work. You assume they work. But um, truly, if they've been on the wall for more than 10 years, it's time to trade those out. The, the firefighters will also tell us that smoke alarms don't come in yellow. So if your smoke alarm is yellowed, it's been long enough. Sounds a little familiar, too. Uh, how much... Uh how much participation do you get when you have something like this? You have a lot of volunteers here today ready to help people out. We do. This is an annual event for us. Of course, we'll install smoke alarms throughout the year, but this Blitz Day where we all come together is really special to us. We have a lot of our um, Red Cross volunteers out here today, as well as uh, partners from Caterpillar and KSA Lighting and PNC Bank and um, OSF. So a lot of great corporate partners that came out today. Warms my heart just knowing that they know how important this work is how does it work if the next time you do this someone wants to someone needs a smoke alarm or in as you say you do it throughout the year too yeah so usually you know we have a a lot of people become aware of the project by interviews and learning about it almost after the fact so i would encourage people even if you're hearing about this after the install day call the red cross or call the fire department and let let us know that you need smoke alarms and we'll get you scheduled nate rice division chief of fire prevention how important is it to have something or a group like the Red Cross that's willing to help you in terms of smoke detectors? Absolutely. It's essential. Um, you know, when you can get organizations like the Red Cross involved in the safety of the citizens um, and and really looking out for their well-being and their health, it, it's it's very important. And that's why, you know, the Peoria Fire Department found that this was such a important thing that we partner with and uh, really do what we can to help them out, too. Um, one of the things, and we were obviously reminded of this last weekend with the uh, with the time change, was the fact that these smoke alarms are new now. They have these these ten year batteries and, and such in them. Are you finding that people aren't really learning about that yet? Um, you know, it is an education process. Um, when we've become used to something for 20 plus years of changing our batteries every, you know, six months, and now um, we have detectors that are have got a battery that's going to last 10 years, that's kind of important. And uh, it, it's something we need to let the public know uh, because it's they, they still need to look at the date on their detectors. So one thing that they need to do is um, and when their detector is 10 years old, it should be replaced. Um, whether the battery is working or not working, once that detector reaches its 10-year lifespan, it needs to be replaced. And so now having these 10-year batteries in detectors is, is a positive thing that we definitely need to let the public know about. Yeah, it's definitely a positive thing, but then I saw the word state law attached to it, and I think that sometimes, regardless of the issue, rubs people the wrong way. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I think the law was intended to um, really do a good thing because there's so many times that we will maybe go into a house and find a dead battery or even a detector without a battery um, because 
they got annoyed that it was going off every time they burnt toast in the toaster, right? So um, I think, you know, having that 10-year, I think the intention is good, and now we just have to educate the public on why that we have the 10-year batteries in detectors. One of the things I was thinking about as I was listening to the uh, folks talk at the beginning here today was the, the other thing that they're working on folks with is is developing that escape plan that is probably the that might almost be the first the first most important thing outside of the smoke alarm uh i was just telling the the uh, group of individuals that are doing the education today with citizens um you know when when we go to the schools and we present to the kids during fire prevention week the number one i thing i tell the kids is that when that smoke detector goes off to get out and i literally have the kids repeat those two words probably two or three times without the presentation is get out because that's what's going to save lives is it more important to get yourself out or to make sure that you're you're helping other family members get out um so uh i tell i always ask the kids do i do i look for pets or do i look for toys when those go off and those are always no answers from the kids but when I say, do I look for family, that might be a little bit a tough one. Um, and, and understandably so, right? We want everybody in our family to be safe too. But if, if we're not getting out ourselves, um, then, we're putting, then we're putting everybody in danger because then somebody might think we didn't get out and look for us. So the sooner we can get out, and that's you know part of that escape plan is having a place to meet outside the home. And that's the reason that, that, that their meeting place is so crucial is everybody get out of the house and meet somewhere, and then we can determine from there what we need to do. What other misconceptions do people have about either, about either the smoke alarms or an escape plan or that sort of thing when, it, when, when push comes to shove here? You know, I think people um, don't realize the importance of it probably nearly as much as they should. Um, you know, when, when something like a, a, you know emergency incident or a tragedy, incident or happens in our house right we go back to muscle memory and we go back to what's our instincts and if our instincts is to get the towel and wave it at the detector every time it goes off um, then we don't know the we don't realize the importance of that detector maybe saving our lives and what we need to do when that we hear that that beep of that detector that does it for this edition of Week in Review. Join us at this time next week on this Midwest Communications Station for another recap of some of the biggest issues and events in central Illinois. You don't have to wait for Week in Review to get the lowdown on what's happening in central Illinois. For instant news 24-7, follow us at 1470 WMBD on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and at 1470WMBD.com. I'm Will Stevenson, WMBD News.